It's a great joy to be with you. Thank you once again for the privilege of being in the bridge. And I never take these invitations for granted. I love coming here. Um, not just love coming to Bolton, but I love coming to Bolton because you're here. And, uh, and as I said uh, in the first service, and it's worth repeating, you know, it's not just the places we go, and I've had the privilege of going to lots of beautiful places around the world, but it's often a place becomes special because of the people that you meet in those places, and they make those places even more remarkable. So it is wonderful to be together in community. Uh, God bless you, whoever you are. If you're a first-time guest, we welcome you. If you've been here a million years or so, then you are also equally welcome, and we pray that the Lord will continue to bless you. It's my joy for a few moments to share the Word of God, and if you've been uh, following uh, sort of this over the last few weeks, you will know that we have been doing a series on the life of David. In fact, uh, quite a number of weeks ago, I kicked that series off, and now I have the privilege of bringing that series to a conclusion. And the series is called David, a man after God's own heart. And my theme today is that exact title. I'm looking at the idea of David having a heart after God and sort of asking the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? We nod, you know, David had a heart after God, and we sort of nod and say amen, but actually we want, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And does that have an application to me in the 21st century? And if you've missed any of that teaching that we've done over the last five weeks, now the sixth week, then you can get that all on podcast. And it's free. Please avail yourself of that. And that will help all of us as we go forward as followers of Jesus. So are you ready to dive in? We'll jump into the Word of God. And uh, here we go. So I'm going to take uh, a reading from two Psalms, two Psalms of David. We're going to read Psalm 23, and then we're going to jump straight into Psalm 24. These two Psalms sit back to back within that. Now, Psalms in, in our English Bible, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Psalms are called Tehillim, and that simply just means songs. These are a collection of amazing songs. And we have, in what we call the book of Psalms, 150 songs. And you can either recite those or even sing those if you want. That's absolutely fine. Have a go at that in the morning in the shower. I'm sure that'll be great. Um, uh, and about 73 of those songs are ascribed to David. So not all of the 150 are given to David. Some people make that mistake. They're all written by David. There's other authors in there, and about 73 of them are ascribed to David. And we're going to read two of those 73 and refer to a couple more as we go on this morning. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow a reading, then it's Psalm 23, 24. If you don't have a Bible close, then you can listen to these amazing words. And here's what David says. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, and he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love or loving kindness shall hunt me down all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then straight into Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now, I'm not planning to preach and teach off those two Psalms, but I wanted to introduce this final study in the life of David through the lens of those two Psalms, because I think they capture the heart that we are seeking to understand here. When you read Psalm 23, uh, tragically often only wheeled out in funerals, even though it's meant to be, I think, a psalm of life, not just a psalm in a moment of passing. This great psalm says something about David's understanding of the Lord. He's got a real insight, revelation of who the Lord is, and he's leaning into that revelation. And as a result, a number of things are coming out of that revelation. And then in Psalm 24, it's as if he's carrying that revelation into a dynamic expression of worship. Uh, and you get this lovely combination in those two Psalms of a man who seems to really know the Lord and is able to describe him in really beautiful terms as far as his world is concerned, and also a man who is passionate about worshiping the Lord. And that's why I've put those two things together, because I think they're a bit of a clue into this idea that David had a heart after God's own heart. Now, now as you've probably discovered over the series, uh, perfect David was not. And actually, the Bible doesn't hide the imperfections of its heroes. In fact, if anything, it works really hard at sort of making sure we understand their imperfections and their vulnerabilities, and in some cases, their mistakes. And David is no exception to this. So we have a paradox within the life of David that even though he's described as being a man who has a, a heart after God's heart, he's certainly not held up as a, as a perfect man, as a flawless man. In fact, the opposite is true. And this is really important for us. When we come to try and understand what it means to have a heart after God's heart, what we're not talking about is perfection. Amen? That's good news. It's good news for me anyway, because if that was the case, I'd be stuffed, right? So if having a heart after God means perfection, we're all in trouble. Are you with me? So what does it mean? Well, well, if it doesn't mean perfection, then I think what it's pointing to is more to do with posture, attitude, the the positioning of my heart towards God and the resulting behavior that comes out of that. 
What the Lord is not looking for, can I say this carefully? Please don't be offended. What the Lord is not looking for is perfection. Because this side of heaven, that is not possible, in my opinion. Now, feel free to disagree. But in my opinion, that is not possible. What he's looking for is not perfection, but a posture towards him. An attitude towards him. If you like, an attitude towards him that then allows certain behaviors to come out of us that please him. I think that's what he's after. And that helps us then negotiate with our own failure and negotiate with the days when we're not as good as we could have been. Yes, we'll have a few of those days, don't we? Yes, well, I certainly do. Days when I'm not as good as I could have been. So, so we're not leaning into an idea of perfection here. We're really thinking more about posture, a, a position, an attitude of the heart towards God and what that might look like. I, I love what, what, what's recorded for us when the, the prophet, the judge Samuel speaks to King Saul, who David is about to replace. Samuel says this, but now your kingdom, that Saul's kingdom, will not endure, but the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now at that stage, we haven't met David. This is chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. We don't meet David till chapter 16. So even before we meet David, God has sought him out. So, so this heart after God has nothing to do with David's badge or David's position or David's standing in society because at this stage in chapter 13, we don't even know who David is. This is something that the Lord is seeing in David in, in some ways, the private world, the unseen world, the world that no one else at this stage seems to be noticing. And I love that. I love that idea. And Paul, later on uh, in the New Testament, preaching to a group of believers, Paul says this in Acts 13, uh, using the words of God. He says, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, really interesting there, in the original quote that Paul is quoting there, David's name is not mentioned. Paul inserts that. Because, because we understand that that man that God was searching after was David himself. And he puts the two ideas together. And Paul goes on to say this in his sermon. From that man, from David, descendants will come. God has brought descendants out from him uh, and brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. So we get this beautiful idea. Here's Paul putting some stuff together for us. He's saying that David had this heart after God, and we'll try and understand what that means in a moment. David had this heart after God, even, even in the private world when no one was looking at him, David had this heart after God. And what happens? God is able to bring something out of that heart, which is much bigger than David. That's the beauty of this. If we have a heart after God, something comes out of it that is always bigger than us. It never just stays with me and the Lord, there's something the Lord wants to do with a heart after him that is bigger than me. And here's David with a heart after the Lord and just seeking after the Lord, and yet the Lord brings something out of that heart that generations later are still blessing the world. We today are being blessed by the stuff, the person that came out of that heart that is Jesus Christ the Messiah. And I love this. I love this, that, that having a heart after God is, is never just one way, but having a heart after him always, can I say this carefully, 
gives the Lord permission to do something. He can do something with a heart after him that we could never do for ourselves. He can do something with us that we could never achieve on our own. He can achieve something with a heart after him that can truly be bigger than us and bless the world around us. And so this heart after God is so, so important. But what does it mean? Now here's the problem we have. A number of times we're told David has a heart after God, but nobody explains that. Nobody gives us, okay, let me tell you what uh, the, f- the four things or the five things that a heart after God looks like. Nobody really specifically and explicitly unpacks that. We've sort of got to do the detective work ourselves. We've got to look at the life of David and ask questions like, what postures in the heart of David? What attitudes in the heart of David? What responses in David would lean towards this idea that he has a heart after God? And, and if we can identify that, is that just for David? Is that just for him? Is that just a special comment that is made about him? Or is this something that the Lord wants for all of us who would aspire to follow him? Now, I, I believe the latter. I believe that the principles we can learn from the heart of David, who had a heart towards the Lord, are principles that we can travel forward to the 21st century and encourage and help ourselves with. Because I don't know about you, but I want to have a heart after God. I'd, I'd like someone to describe me like that. Yes? You know, if I came to the end of my life and the only description was he was a half-decent preacher or he, he, you know, he, he, he liked teaching the Bible, I'd be, I'd be pretty disappointed. What I would love my wife to say or my kids to say or the closest friends in my world to say who rubbed shoulders with me was, John loved the Lord. John had a heart after the Lord. John really had a passion for the Lord. That's what I would love them to say, amongst other things, hopefully. I mean, I won't be around, so I won't be able to hear what they have to say, so it won't really matter, really. But you know what I mean? I I read these phrases, and something within me leaps out and says, I want a heart like that. And if we're asking that question, then we're asking, so what does a heart like that look like? If it's possible, what does it look like? And I'm going to suggest four ideas that I think might guide us towards understanding what having a heart after the Lord looks like. Is that okay? So here we go. First idea is this. I think a heart after the Lord is, first of all, a heart of surrender. Okay? A heart of surrender. In 1 Samuel 16, we're introduced to David. We've already touched on this. and, And David is excluded from the party. Samuel comes to pick the new king. And none of the sons paraded in front of Samuel are picked. Uh, and David is eventually brought in after being left out in the fields. You, we, we've covered this in, in study number one. And David is brought in. And as soon as David walks in, here's what it says. The Lord speaks to Samuel and says, it's rise and anoint him. He's the one. And what's remarkable is Samuel anoints David and David immediately surrenders to this idea. Now, now think about this. 30 seconds before, he's a shepherd. Now, he's the next king. Seriously. I mean, that's a moment, isn't it? And actually, David surrenders to that. He, there's no resistance. There's, in fact, in the whole of the life of David, there is very little resistance to, to this idea in his world. He accepts it immediately 
and he surrenders to it. And there's a beautiful contrast in this to the previous king, King Saul. Saul gets anointed privately, and then when when they come to appoint him publicly, they can't find him. And even though this man's head and shoulders above everybody, Saul is hiding in the baggage. And, And there's a sense in which Saul accepts the job, but never surrenders to the Lord. Check that out. Now, feel free to disagree with me. But if you look at the life of Saul, there's always this pull and push. And in fact, Saul gets into terrible trouble because in moments when he should have done what the Lord asked him to do, he doesn't do it. And in the moments when the Lord says, don't do that, he does it. He gets himself into terrible trouble. And, And ultimately, you sort of think, well, that's what people do. Yeah, that's true. But I think there's something deeper in Saul. I think Saul accepted the role of being king without fully surrendering to the Lord as his king. And I think David's different. David surrenders not just to the role of king, but to the king. Are you with me? And there's a beautiful echo in one of David's songs. In fact, we've read it today already. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, David would have known that imagery so well, him being a shepherd. And David would have understood that Middle Eastern shepherds always led their sheep, never drove their sheep. So the Middle Eastern shepherd never drove the sheep from behind. The only time you saw a shepherd driving sheep is if they're going to slaughter. But the shepherd, the Middle Eastern shepherd, leads sheep. The sheep follow him. They knew his voice. And, they, and David understood this idea that when I'm walking, the sheep are following. And here's what David says. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And the, the, one of the simplest ideas that David is portraying to us is he's my leader. He's the one who will have my best interest at his heart. A good shepherd's not going to lead the sheep in the nasty, horrible situations. That good shepherd is going to lead the sheep into a good place. And so David makes the decision, just as I call my sheep to follow me, I'm going to follow him. Surrendering to his leading. Right there, right there. That idea is at the heart of the heart after God. Are you with me? Uh, But it's also one of the most difficult things for a human. Because humans, we think we know the way. We think we know a better way. We think, if we're honest at times, we've even thought we've known better than God. You'd never admit that out loud. But sometimes the way we behave, that's what we're saying. And here's David saying, no, no. He walks into that room. He surrenders to the anointing. He surrenders to being the next king. And he he pens a song and he says, the Lord's my shepherd. So wherever he leads me, I'm going to follow him. Even if I don't know where he's going. And surrender says this. Surrender says this. Now listen, this is at the heart of the heart of a heart after God, right? This is at the very core. Surrender says this, I want what you want. Now, if you and I can settle that, we'll have a heart after the Lord. And that becomes difficult when what he wants 
is not what I want. It's very cool when what God wants is what I want. Yeah, amen. Praise the Lord. But there are moments, many of them, you all will have stories to this effect, where the Lord wants something and we don't want that something. Now, at that moment, it's at that moment that we find out if our heart's after him or not. You still love me? Sure. Is this easy? No. This is tough. This is, this, this is really core stuff. This will probe the very depths of your being. So this is not easy stuff. We can't be frivolous with this. If we're serious about exploring the heart after God, we have to explore this idea that, that I might want something that the Lord doesn't want, and then what am I going to do? Am I going to follow the shepherd, or am I going to leave the flock and do my own thing? You with me? Make sense to you? Maybe? Have a think about that. But I think having a heart after the Lord is a heart of surrender. Secondly, the heart after the Lord is a heart of worship. I think we see this in David's world. There's an amazing story where David discovers that the ark of God, now the ark was like a special box that was symbolic of the presence of God. David discovers that the ark of God is sort of not where it should be. And after conquering Jerusalem and wanting to make Jerusalem the capital of his new kingdom, he brings that ark or attempts to bring it back to Jerusalem. He wants the presence of God at the center of his kingship. It's a beautiful image. And so they, they set up the journey, uh, and, and really what they should have done was got people to carry the ark in a special way. There were special regulations to carry the ark, and they sort of ignored those regulations, and they decided to put the ark on a brand new cart, not just any old cart, a specially built cart for the occasion, and they put the ark on the cart. As the cart is moving along the road, it hits a, a bump or something, and the ark looks like it's going to fall off the cart. So a man called Uzzah, a good man, puts his hand out on the ark, and God kills him. Awkward story, right? Difficult story to read to your children before they go to bed at night. But, but in a moment like that, we should ask the question, why would God do something like that? Not, not that's disgusting. We should ask, why would God do that? Why would the God who loves this nation do that? Well, it's because... They're doing something for him in a way that he doesn't want. And, he, and he's, he's got to show them that actually, no, I don't want it that way. I want it a different way. Now, David freaks out. He will have nothing to do with the ark. He puts the ark in a man's house called Obed-Edom. And God blesses the socks off Obed-Edom for three months. Everything Obed-Edom touches turns to gold in those three months. He's very blessed. He's very happy to have the ark in his home. David realizes his mistake they bring the ark back properly the second time and an amazing journey. You can read it for yourself in 2 Samuel 6 and it's an incredible time. As they enter Jerusalem, David starts to dance wildly, high praise, uh, unrestrained enthusiasm. And he dances wildly before the Lord. And his wife, Michael, who's the daughter of the previous king, Saul, looks out the window and it says this, she despised him in her heart. And in fact, when she meets with David, she describes David's behavior as vulgar. 
And look at David's response. David says this to her in response. He said, it was before the Lord I danced. I will celebrate, he says, before the Lord. And here's what he says, and I love this from David, bit of audacity from David. He says, I will become even more undignified, even more vulgar than this. Wow. He's dancing, and she's looking at him thinking, that is disgusting. But David has his eyes on the Lord. David is enjoying the presence of the Lord. David is delighted that they're bringing the symbol of the presence of the Lord right into the center of his city, right into the center of the nation, and right into the center of their future. And that's why David is dancing before the Lord. He's unrestrained happiness. But someone who doesn't see what he sees doesn't then appreciate his behavior of extravagance or vulgarity, as she describes it. And we have this clashing moment where David says, I will become even more vulgar. And can you hear the echo, the echo of his words from Psalm 24? It says, in Psalm 24, he says, lift up your heads, you gates. He says, be lifted high, you ancient doors, that what? That the king of glory may come in. There's almost an echo to that event. That, that David is saying, come on, gates, come on, open up, lift up, make a way for the Lord so that he can come in. Yeah. And he's inviting us to open up our hearts in worship to see who he is, the king of glory, and to make sure we're making a way for that king of glory to come into our world, our everyday world, and our ordinary world. And when we open up to him, he comes in. This is the heart that David had. A passionate heart. Why is he dancing? Why is he unrestrained? Why is he undignified? Not because he wants to make a spectacle of himself, but because he is consumed with who the Lord is. And a woman who wasn't consumed with who the Lord is couldn't get it. That happens a lot. People never apologize to me for what they believe, and I am not going to apologize to people for being undignified or extravagant or over the top with the Lord. I love the Lord. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the Lord. I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the Lord. If it wasn't for His grace and mercy, I'm pretty certain I'd be in hell today, and yet He has transformed my life. So I don't mind being over the top for that. And I'm not going to apologize to people who don't get it. And it's not a personality thing. It's a vision thing. It's an understanding who he is. And because we understand who he is, we want to please him. David was a worshiping man. A man who loved to worship the Lord because he saw who the Lord was. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. Our God is the King of glory. And as a result of that, he dances extravagantly before the Lord. Are you with me? Yeah. The heart after God is a heart that worships him, that gives him his proper place. And some people will understand that heart and some people won't. That's not your problem. Our call is to place him at the center. Are you with me? I, I've been married to Don almost 34 years, and I was out ministering yesterday at an induction service, got home in time to watch the match. 
Many of you know I'm a Liverpool supporter. So I got home ready, put the shirt on. Beth Ann's got her shirt on. Me and her are ready to go. And I've been married to Dawn almost 34 years, and she still doesn't understand that. She doesn't understand a grown man, a sensible man, a man she loves, screaming and shouting at the television, convinced that there is a conspiracy theory in the referee in Real Madrid, that there's stuff going on, greater powers at work that are working against the people of God. It's all going on as I'm And I am screaming and shouting and carrying on. When the final whistle went, I literally turned the TV off and sort of walked out of the room. Couldn't even wait for the presentation ceremony. My wife looks at that and she goes, you're crackers. I scream at the TV and she says, you know they can't hear you, right? And at one point I had to say to her, don't come in the room. Because you come in and you make comments and you only upset me. Don't come in the room. Don't come in the room. She doesn't get it because she doesn't see it. Listening on the radio on the way across, Liverpool supporter paid a thousand pounds for a ticket and he couldn't get in the game. Now, people who don't get Liverpool, they go, it's bonkers. For a Liverpool supporter, there's, oh, bless him. Poor lad. Are you with me? When, when you don't see it, you don't get it. And David saw the Lord and lived passionately towards him. And we have 73 songs. 73. Amazing. Because he had a worshiping heart. I think a worshiping heart is at the center of a heart after God. Does that make sense to you? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. David had a learning heart, thirdly. A heart after his word. David had a passion for the Lord's instruction. And we're not quite sure if, if David wrote Psalm 1 or not, but if you read Psalm 1, it really sets the tone for the, the, the other 149 Psalms. The, and it says this, speaking of the man who fears the Lord, it says, his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. And on that Torah, on that instruction, he meditates day and night. And, and that's David. That's who David, and here's what, whether David wrote Psalm 1 or not, David, we're, we're having a position here that actually if, if you're going to get the, hundred, the other 149 Psalms, You've really got to understand that the gateway into this is through the word of the Lord. It's through God's words, through God's instruction. And if you grab God's instruction, then you're going to get God's heart. Because, because the Lord's instruction reveals the Lord's heart. And the only Bible David probably would have had at that time were the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would have been called the Torah, the instruction of God. That's what he's referring to. And that would have been David's engine room as far as the Bible is concerned. And when you read David's songs, you're hearing the instruction of the Lord in all his songs. You're hearing the fact that David really grabs these words and wants to understand the heart of the Lord. One of my favorite Psalms of David is Psalm 19, and he says these beautiful words, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. They are altogether lovely. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the comb. 
David says, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then right at the end of that psalm, he says these words. May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, why is that important? Because if we want to catch the heart of God, we must lean into the instruction of God. We'll never catch his heart unless we're prepared to catch some of this. Amen? And, and it's his word, however we engage with it, reading it, listening to it, or a bit of both. However we're listening to his word, that's what's going to instruct us into him. And actually, a heart after God is not just a heart that wants to memorize the Bible and impress people with knowledge and win theological arguments. A heart after God wants to learn instruction for one reason and one reason only. What do you want? What do you want, O Lord? What's your desire? What's your pleasure? I want to please you. I want to honor you. I want to do everything in my power to, to delight you because of my responses to you. But I'm not going to be able to do that unless I know what he wants. Know what he desires. Know what he likes. Know what he doesn't like. And how do we learn that? Well, we learn that, obviously, primarily through this. Every single day, I kiss this beautiful text and I pray a prayer from the Psalms. Open my eyes, O Lord, that I may see wonderful things in your law. Why? Why am I saying that? Because I want to be clever. No! No! I'm saying that because I want to know what he wants. Because if I find out what he wants and I lean into that, that's what this conversation is about. It's about having a heart after God. Not just to impress people with our knowledge or win arguments or quote the Hebrew text or quote the Greek. It's not about that. It's about what do you want? And David leans into that. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. And then David goes on to say in that first Psalm, if he wrote it, he says, then, then that person's like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. Why? Because he saturated himself. She saturated herself in the instruction of the Lord for one reason and one reason only. What do you want? Come on, are you with me? And we're all his frailty and all his mistakes. David, David pursued that. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think that's why David's described as a man after God's own heart. And when you read his songs, we hear that. Does that make sense to you? Last idea, and then I'm drawing this to a close. You've been very patient. Thank you. But here's the last idea. I think not only a heart of surrender, a heart of worship, a heart of learning, but finally, a heart of obedience. Now, let me unpack this for you because this is so, so important. When Paul is referring to David later on in the New Testament, Paul says this of David. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Acts 13, you can find that. And the word that Paul uses there for serve is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Literally, in the language of Paul, it's two words jammed together. It's a compound word. And it literally means this, under roar. So in the days of Paul, the big Roman galleys, the big, 
the big naval ships that dominated the Mediterranean Sea on behalf of the Roman Empire, some of them had up to 400 men under the deck rowing. Imagine that. 400 men under the deck rowing. They were called, Paul uses this word, under rowers. And Paul says that David underrode the purposes of God. In other words, David caught the heart of God and then served that and did that and committed himself to doing that. And I love, I love that idea. And that's in contrast to King Saul because King Saul didn't underrule like that. And in fact, Samuel has to say to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't want your sacrifices if your heart is not obeying. Are you with me? And David commits himself to underrowing, but David has a catastrophic moment in his life. And this catastrophic moment, ironically, shows the depths of his heart after God. So stay with me for a couple more moments. David sees a beautiful woman that he's not married to. In fact, she's married to one of his best friends, one of his 30 mighty men, who happens to be on the battlefield fighting on behalf of King David. And David sees this beautiful woman, invites him, invites her to his palace and has sex with her. And as a result of having sex with her, she gets pregnant. To try and cover this act up, David then invites Uriah home in the hope that Uriah, having been in the battlefield, first thing he'll want to do is make love to his wife. But Uriah, being so honorable to David, doesn't even go home. <laughs> Sleeps at the door. Why? Because he doesn't want to dishonor his men, and he doesn't want to dishonor the king. And David's got a problem now. Uriah hasn't had sex with, this, with Bathsheba, so he's got to do something. So what does he do? He plans for Uriah to be exposed on the battlefield and killed. David indirectly kills Uriah. Now remember, Uriah is one of his 30 mighty men. Uriah is one of his men, his loyal men. And David has him killed. And you say things, how can you have a heart after God and do that? Have you ever asked that question? You should ask that question. If you're not asking that question, you're not reading the Bible, right? You should ask, how on earth could a man with a heart after God do that? And the Bible shows us this incredible, awkward, difficult moment of darkness in the life of David, a moment where he sins. And he tries to get away with it, and it's through the prophet Nathan that he gets caught. He doesn't even confess. He gets caught. And Nathan tells a story. David, in self-righteousness, reacts to the story. And Nathan says, actually, it's you. You're the man. You're the guilty party in the story. And at a moment like that, we're either going to run to God or run away from God. Now, now, stay with me. This is very, very important. David, out of that experience, writes a song. And the song is called Psalm 51. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right steadfast spirit within me. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways 
so that sinners will turn back to you. And then David says this in the psalm. Listen to these words. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice. Where have we heard that? You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. And then he says this, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Listen to these words. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. Now, it's easy to miss this. Stay with me. This is so important. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. And I've been in Christian ministry 35 years. I've seen many examples of remorse, few examples of repentance. Remorse happens when you get caught. And you're sorry because you got caught. And remorse is about the person who commits the offense. I'm sorry because I got caught. Repentance, however, is different. Repentance is a decision that recognizes, number one, what you did was wrong. Number two, you want to not do that again. And number three, you understand that your actions hurt somebody else. Remorse is about me. Repentance is about the other. Remorse is about, sorry, I got caught. Repentance is about, I don't want to do that again because I've hurt you. This is what's happening for David. Now, he didn't confess. He got caught. But when he got caught, hear his heart. What's his heart? His heart is, listen carefully now, his heart is, I've hurt you. His heart is not, oh, I got caught. His heart is, I've hurt you. And, and the only thing I can bring to you, God, is a broken spirit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for hurting you. Now, ironically, ironically, that terrible failure, which on the surface of it looks like he doesn't have a heart after God, actually reveals in the most profound way he did have a heart after God. Because when his failure was exposed, David wasn't remorseful for himself, but repentant because he hurt God. In 35 years of ministry, I have rarely heard someone say, I am sorry because I've hurt the Lord. Most times it's, I'm sorry because I got caught. Or I'm sorry because I hurt so-and-so. But few understand that our actions are hurting him. That's having a heart after God. Are you with me? That's deep. This is heavy this morning, right? You'll be glad to get home, lie down, have some food. But if we're going to talk about having, do the band want to join me? If we're going to talk about having a heart after God, we can't go surface. What's the point? Heart's heart. In, the, in a Hebrew world, heart meant center. Heart meant core. Having a heart after God touches the very core of our experience. And having a heart after God is not about being perfect or flawless or genius or brilliant all the time. It's not. Thank God. But having a heart after God is about posture. Lord, your will over my will. That's a heart after God. Lord, I see who you are and I want to place you at the center and worship you. That's a heart after God. That Lord... I want your instruction 
above my wisdom. That's a heart after God. That, Lord, in the moments when I'm doing well and in the moments when I feel, I realize it's not just about me, but it's about you. That's a heart after God. And I want to encourage you from the life of David that that heart that he had can be a heart that we have. A heart of surrender, humility, a heart of worship, a heart where we are listening to him, hungry for his word, and a heart where we understand that the number one pleasure of a human is to bring pleasure to the Lord. And that's a journey we can all make. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for you. We're going to sing a beautiful song that in many ways captivates these ideas. And as you're singing these words, words you might know or maybe you're hearing or seeing for the first time, really lean in. And I want to encourage you to say, Lord, I want a heart after you. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for humility. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for passion. He's not looking for, pa for perfection. He's looking for hunger. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for a heart that desires above all else to please him. So, Lord Jesus, I pray for your people right now. I pray for your church, for those who love you and are following you. Lord Jesus, we would grab the spirit of this conversation and open up our hearts to allow you to help us be men and women who have a heart after you. Lord, we want you at the core of our world. We want to have the courage to surrender. We want to have the passion to worship. We want to have the wisdom to listen. We want to have the desire to please. Lord, we thank you for David and for his example to us, but Lord, we want to be men and women in our everyday, ordinary world who demonstrate a heart after your heart. Lord, I pray that you will come to each one of us. Give us soft hearts, sensitive hearts. Give us hearts that make room for you. Give us hearts that desire you and love you so that, Lord, we will be men and women who it can be said, they, he, she had a heart after your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.